Attention, please. You're listening to TalkZone.com, Internet Talk Radio. It's time for Healthy Talk Radio. By the powers vested in me, by the Federal Communications Commission. Coming to you live from the headquarters of the Global Health Network and across the world wide web. (gasps) Computers can do that? It's America's longest running radio program dedicated to your health and wellness. What's taking place here is an alternative approach. Now, the woman who's changing the face of health care each and every day. That's the fact. Here's Deborah Ray. Good day. Welcome to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Well, with much of the business pages now focusing on going green, now there's a new certification according to the U.S. Green Building Council. Apparently, offices themselves rather than buildings can go green, although only 112 offices across the country have achieved that coveted green status to date. He's the author of Overdosed America. He left family practice. Uh, he was an award-winning uh, family doctor, uh, an educator at Harvard, to make a difference with his book, Overdosed America, with educating you and me that vested interests do make a difference in how doctors are taught and more. Dr. John Abramson joins us today. We invite you to join us. 1-800-307-3002, right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now, the news and views about the news you won't hear anywhere else. The Healthy Talk Radio News Digest. Well, it's a bioflavonoid called quercetin. It is found in red uh, apples, uh, red onions, tea, and red wine. It's a known anti Histamine, natural antihistamine. Um, quercetin also has a great deal of antioxidant properties and some intriguing research to, to indicate that it may be of great benefit uh, for cancer patients. Now at the Institute of Food Research, they have found out a little bit more about quercetin that they didn't know, indicating, uh, according to the lead researcher, Dr. Paul Kroon, that quercetin may be of much benefit in terms of the health of our heart, those lining of the arteries, the endothelial lining, uh, than ever thought before. What they found is that when they looked at blood levels of quercetin, they found uh, quercetin appears to disappear from the bloodstream quite rapidly. So if they were taking a look at levels of quercetin and heart health factors, the quercetin wasn't there. What they found, though, is because quercetin is processed and literally disappears from the bloodstream so rapidly, if they focus on the metabolites of quercetin and not the flavonoid itself, what they find is that the metabolites of quercetin help prevent chronic inflammation that leads to heart disease because it affects the cells that line the blood vessels. It was interesting indeed to, to indicate that we now know more about the metabolism of quercetin that is of great benefit for the immune system, uh, certainly for our sinuses because it's a natural antihistamine and may be a huge boon in terms of heart disease as well. Quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N. 
Well, it is a, a Harvard-based uh, researcher, Dr. Deborah Todd, who is set to uh, give a presentation all about citicoline. It's an interesting form of choline. Um, choline, of course, making up the membranes of our cells, particularly our brain cells, that are essential for both neural and cognitive function. In other words, how well our brain functions and why citicoline has been used extensively to promote cognitive function, what they have now found is that there are novel forms of citicoline um, that keep um, levels in the brain very high because it, it easily crosses the blood-brain barrier, increases the production of acetylcholine, noradrenaline, dopamine. Of course, uh, that's essential for our brain's function as well as for mood. So, Dr. Deborah Todd, Harvard University, uh, set uh, at Supply Side West, uh, which is going to be held in the upcoming days in Las Vegas, to reveal some additional research on the use of citicoline, increased concentration, increased focus, improved accuracy, improved speed on tasks that use our brain. Perhaps those aging brains of the future will consume a little more citicoline. Well, it's out of my alma mater, University of Louisville in Kentucky, finding that adding more copper to the diet, now that's one of those minerals that uh, demands balance. Zinc and copper must be in balance. Otherwise, we are likely to promote anemia. But when they are, and when we get optimal copper, what uh, animal studies at the University of Louisville in Kentucky suggest that copper can fixed enlarged hearts, that adding copper to the diet, reversed enlargement of the heart, and of course we know there are a number of nutrients that can better the function of the heart by providing it the substrate uh, that it needs for energy. Uh, substrate the nutrients like coenzyme Q10 and D-ribose and adding copper, if the University of uh, Louisville is correct, uh, shown to reverse the effects of enlarged heart in laboratory animal studies. Well, speaking of universities, gosh, my other alma mater, uh, University of Kentucky, has collaborated with Ohio State University. They have made a gel from black raspberries. They are using this gel topically on skin cancer lesions <laughs> and they are pretty amazed. They uh, believe that this black raspberry gel uh, has been found in 20 patients who had precancerous skin lesions to have their lesions reversed. More than half um, had significant improvement. Another uh, portion of this group of patients reversed their condition. And uh, the response of the researchers were, this is very tantalizing, that this black raspberry solution has a positive effect at the molecular level, changing enzymes and proteins. And it was nothing more than freeze-dried black raspberries suspended in KY jelly applied to the precancerous lesions four times a day for six weeks. Of course, I'm, I'm beholden to tell you, don't try this at home. But isn't it amazing the number of patients had these precancerous lesions reversed? Interesting indeed. Well, these numbers are, are just sobering. That one in seven Americans over the age of 71 
has some form of dementia. New research uh, from Duke University Medical School begging the question, you know, how many of these patients have undiagnosed vitamin B12 deficiency? 40% of those of the age of uh, 60 in this country are vitamin B12 deficient. It can masquerade as dementia. Then you have to ask the question, knowing that there's nothing on the planet that does not have some degree of heavy metal toxicity, and many of these metals like lead and mercury do cross the blood-brain barrier, do affect memory and cognitive function, how many of these patients have undiagnosed heavy metal toxicity? Now that we know that dementia and Alzheimer's are much more related to the lifestyle choices that we make, we have to uh, keep up physical activity. It affects our brain health. Mental activity affects our brain health. Our nutritional status, if we are deficient in the fatty acids, as are 90% of Americans, according to Dr. Carol Locke from, uh, from Harvard, and don't get sustainable long-term uh, um, sources of uh, glucose, our, our brain's uh, most uh, uh, often source of fuel. In other words, if we eat processed sugars rather than those sugars that, those foods that stick to our ribs that release sugar slowly, the low glycemic foods, we can affect our brain's function So you have to ask yourself uh, the question, with one in seven Americans age 71 or older have Alzheimer's disease or some other form of dementia, how many of these uh, patients could be helped by some significant lifestyle choices? Speaking of that, uh, at Medscape today, interesting CME for doctors indicating that for patients who have long-term, nonspecific neck pain, what they found in a, in a randomized uh, multi-center controlled study out of Sweden that Qigong and exercise therapy were effective treatments for long-term non-specific neck pain. We are finding uh, more often than not that conventional medical's approach to, uh, to pain is limited. And, of course, with the innovation of anesthesiologists from Duke University who apply numbing capsaicin from hot peppers or nicotine patches, perhaps patients will have a lot more options in the future when it comes to the treatment of pain. We're going to return uh, to talk with the author of Overdosed America, Dr. John Abramson, joining us today. If you're not familiar with his book, get one and get one for your physician. You can find out more at overdosedamerica.com and join us at 800-307-3002. Time to get back to basics. A look at why American medicine has gone astray and why more health care doesn't mean better health care. Now, with the acclaimed author of Overdosed America, Dr. John Abramson, here's Deborah Ray. If you don't have a copy, get one. And get one for your health care practitioner as well. Because here's an award-winning frontline health care practitioner, family medical doctor, who decided to leave his uh, uh, career to make a difference. He joins us today to bring us up to speed on his activities, and certainly we'll talk about what's been in the news of late. He's Dr. John Abramson, who joins us today. Dr. Abramson, a privilege. Hello and welcome. Hey, Deborah. It's a pleasure to be back with you. So bring us up to speed. What have you been up to these days? 
Oh, I've been doing a lot of traveling and writing. Uh, interesting tales. I had a wonderful trip out to uh, California and Alaska the week before last. I spoke to uh, the California CARA, C-A-R-A, California Associated, Association of Retired Adults, I think. Just a wonderful group of 300 feisty retired adults, um, uh, politically savvy, the most politically savvy audience I think I've ever spoken to, and uh, was talking to them about the the way that their doctors are being misled. It's an issue that we keep coming back to, but I, I just it's so important to understand how doctors are being misled. And just before I spoke to that group, uh, Representative Waxman released a report on uh, how Medicare Part D is doing and the uh, billions of dollars that are being lost and unnecessary administrative costs and, and uh, the uh, waste of paying full price for the for the drugs that the elders are getting through Medicare Part D instead of uh, negotiating good prices. And uh, uh, amazing, amazing fact, Deborah, uh, this got the crowd riled up. Uh, Representative Waxman's report points out that when older folks hit the donut hole, right. after they've spent about $2,300, $2,400 on drugs, drugs right. and they don't have coverage for the next 2000 well, the older folks are, spending, uh, are paying 100% of the cost of their drugs the insurance companies that they've had to sign up with uh, to administer their drug benefit are collecting rebates from the drug companies while the Medicare patients are paying 100% for their drugs. It's just such a crazy system. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Where does it stop? But, but the, the empowerment, um, if we could, because it, it's a topic, certainly in your book, Overdosed America, a topic of which we have spoken uh, uh, many times, that you know, the empowering issue of our lifestyle still makes a difference because I'm seeing a, a record number of articles these days, including a real mindset shift. Tell me if if uh, if you agree, Dr. Abramson, that exercise is being considered in a whole different fashion. We just recently Medscape uh, talking about how researchers were just amazed that exercise would reduce the bone changes that were associated with the um, hormone suppressive, the androgen deprivation therapies and prostate cancer, that we're thinking of, of a lifestyle technique as exercise is really good medicine these days. Well, the amazing thing is that the experts are amazed because the data's been <laughs> out there for so long, Deborah. I mean, it's shocking. When I lecture to doctors and I show them that they're being um, basically forced to put older folks on cholesterol-lowering statin drugs to reduce um, their health hazards, uh, from cardiovascular disease, and that the drug company studies, uh, the drug company's funded studies show that there's not a reduction in the risk of overall mortality uh, when people, older folks at risk of heart disease take a statin. And yet, when older folks follow a healthy lifestyle, they reduce their mortality risk by 60%. And yet, the doctors are being told to put people on statins when a healthy lifestyle is clearly the best medicine. And one of the most shocking things of all is when when listeners, when your doctors think about whether you should be put on a cholesterol-lowering statin drug or not, they look at your risk factors, and then they look at your Framingham risk score, which is a composite score. It includes your good cholesterol and your blood pressure and uh, several other factors. It doesn't even include whether or not you exercise or not. 
And then your doctor makes a decision about whether you should take a cholesterol-lowering statin drug or not, when in fact exercise explains twice as much of the risk of heart disease as does the entire composite score. And your doctors are are not being told to uh, weigh whether you're exercising or not in your heart risk. Crazy situation. Deborah, I also spoke at, um, I gave grand rounds at one, a, a very prestigious academic institution, and um, I was speaking about the extent to which the knowledge that the doctors, the information that the doctors read in their medical journals is biased by uh, drug company funding, right. and that if the doctors wanted to fulfill the professional mission that they saw as their goal, that they had to start to take responsibility for what they believe to be true about what's in the medical literature because so much of the information is funded by the drug companies and the evidence just keeps mounting and mounting that when studies are funded by the drug companies, the drug companies tend to get the results they want which show their drugs are better and cause fewer side effects. So I finished this lecture and after the lecture, a guy came up to me who said he was in charge of research for his department. In This is in a very prestigious academic medical institution. And he said, I know that when the research that we do in our department, the research that we coordinate, side effects are not collected and are not reported. And I know that side effects are occurring in, in the drug studies, right. the studies of the new drugs that right. we're doing, and they're not being reported and then they don't get published in the journals, and then doctors don't know about them, and then doctors prescribe the drugs to their patients, and then as as patients start to take the drug after it's been approved, then you start to see these safety problems. So then I beg your comment with Dr. Beatrice Gollum, you know, recently publishing her data about side effects in statin drugs, that how many times uh, physicians just brush off couldn't be the statin drug, that neither the physician nor the patient has a representative objective picture of risk to benefit to make an informed decision about this drug, Dr. Abramson. Yeah, that, that, that is the key, is that people don't understand how great the likelihood of side effects are. And when, you're, when your doctor's reading it in the journal, when you're um, seeing it on TV, when you're getting the drug ads, when the drug reps are bringing lunch for the doctors, when the drug companies are providing far more than 50% of the continuing medical education for the doctors, it's this entire environment is uh, colored by the drug company's version of uh, the benefits of, of their medications. And what happens is the potential for side effects gets crowded out, and that's really important. But what's even more important is what you started with, Deborah, is that the real avenue to avenues to good health are crowded out and people are disempowered, think they need to depend on uh, these uh, expensive and risky uh, medications to achieve good health when really most of good health, at least two-thirds of good health, is within their own power to live a healthy lifestyle, to look at the quality of the relationships in their lives, uh, to look at the stress level in their lives, that that's what determines most of our health, and yet we're getting, like a good magician, we're getting distracted and we're looking at the wrong things for health. 
When we return, uh, I want to ask you uh, uh, your insight about the recent revelation, uh, this to the degree to which drug company funding has affected medical school educators. Dr. Absolutely. John Abramson joining Absolutely. us today on Healthy Talk Radio. Oh, we have another. <laughs> I misread the clock. My apologies. We'll start now. <laughs> well, this is a very important finding. This was this article was published uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and uh, it shows that 60% of department chairmen in medical schools and the best, the most respected um, academic um, hospitals uh, have financial ties to the drug industry. 60% of department chairmen have financial ties to the drug industry. <clears throat> so what this means is that the tone that's set within, from the top of our academic medical uh, institutions, the tone that's set is that um, rela- commercial relationships are um, not only okay, but are a good thing and are actually uh, a prize that is Awarded. That thought we will be back with Dr. John Abramson. The information on Healthy Talk Radio may be eye-opening, controversial, and disturbing to some, but it is all well-documented and presented by credentialed guests as well as our knowledgeable host. It may not represent the views of this network, this radio station, or its sponsors, but it might just be good for your health. Dr. John Abramson joining us today on Healthy Talk Radio, the author of Overdose to America. Make sure you have a copy. Make sure your health care provider has a copy. There is more online at overdosedamerica.com. And we were talking about that amazing statistic uh, just recently reported in the medical literature about um, just to the extent of the insidious nature in which sponsor dollars are coloring medical school education. If we'll put this in the context, if you would please, uh, uh, Dr. Abramson, because just on the wire services today is a presentation that Fox Cancer Center made yesterday at the American Society of Therapeutic Radiology Oncology meeting that's being held in L.A., indicating if they take a look at somebody who has lung cancer before they start treatment for lung cancer, it is their quality of life their overall health, their nutritional status, their mobility, their emotional stability, their social support. Do they have somebody to take them to cancer treatments, to help them with medication, to make sure that they're eating well? That was the predictor that people who had below average quality of life were had a had death rate 70% higher, that our, our nation's doctors don't get this lifestyle education in medical schools. That's exactly right, Deborah. And the problem is that most of the, what we call knowledge, most of the presumed knowledge that doctors uh, learn, learn and are exposed to and are responsible for knowing is those studies that produce that knowledge are produced by the drug and other medical industries. Now, in a better system, You'd say that's the marketplace working, that we're uh, attracting investment in uh, research that's going to push back the uh, barriers of our knowledge, the boundaries of our knowledge, uh, and produce a better life for people. But what's happening, because the research has been privatized, the funding of the research has been privatized, it means that our medical knowledge grows towards profitable medical interventions, like plants grow towards sunlight, 
instead of growing towards effective medical interventions. And the, the situation that you just brought up, Deborah, is a perfect example, where 70% of mortality is explained by the quality of life, not by the medical care that people get, it, uh, the study in people who have lung cancer. But doctors aren't taught about that. And even when they're taught about it, Deborah, and this is a point that I make, I speak a lot to medical students, and I make this point over and over again, that in the process of going through medical school and medical training, we doctors are taught unconsciously, implicitly, not spoken, non-verbally, but we're taught very clearly that the kinds of facts that can be discovered by the scientific method, the kinds of facts that are observable from the third-person perspective that uh, can be measured by instruments and, and uh, the measurements can be reproduced, that those kinds of facts are more important than the kinds of facts that have to do with how people feel, how pe what people value, right. what gives their lives meaning. And yet over and over again we see, just like the study that you just brought up, that in terms of the overall health, it's the quality of our lives that's more important and the health of our behaviors that's more important than the specific scientific facts. And what we were talking about just before the break is the, the link is so important because we find that 60% of department chairmen in medical schools and academic departments have ties to industry. Well, that's going to unconsciously, it's, it's going to do one of two things. Either it's going to unconsciously bias them towards prioritizing the kinds of interventions that are beneficial to the companies that are paying them, or they've been selected to get paid because that's what they believed in the first place. In either case, the students and the young doctors following their role models are going to believe right. that the kind of medical interventions that produce the greatest profits for the drug industry and the other medical industries are the best, when in fact that's not true. I went to medical school in the early 70s, and there was no such thing as a professor of mine at that time having a financial tie with a drug company. It's true. It's true. Now, if you could see the truth, you know, I wish we could all put on true vision goggles and look at doctors' white coats, and they would look just like NASCAR drivers, um, the suits that NASCAR drivers wear. <laughs> Instead of saying STP uh, oil and Exxon gas, they would say Pfizer and Amgen and Merck and, and SmithKline, Glaxo, and, and they would just be covered with drug company names. Because now the more prestigious an academic institution and the more prestigious the researcher, the more likely they are to have ties to drug companies. And that so distorts our approach to health care. That's I think, Deborah, that's the core reason why we Americans spend twice as much as the other industrialized countries on health care per person, and we live the shortest amount of time, of time in good health. So we're not getting our money's worth, and the reason we're not getting our money's worth is because industry controls what we think, and the real purpose of a health care system ought not to be to provide the richest entrepreneurial opportunities for industry, but to provide the best health to the American people. And the American people are getting cheated on this. So take that one step further. I'm sure you saw the article that talked about doctors' responses to prestigious diagnosis. 
code word, these are diagnoses that make the system a lot of money. There was a difference in a, in a, in a patient with a heart condition versus maybe an allergy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or, or, uh, or, or sadness because somebody died. Right. Um, and you see the advertisements for um, hospitals, heart depart- cardiac departments. Oh. Why do you see those? Because they make the most money. They make a fortune for hospitals. And if you're a hospital administrator, if you're the CEO of a hospital, be it profit or nonprofit, <clears throat> you're going to be looking at what's the effect, the financial effect on the, bo- uh, the bottom line financial effect of the decisions you make. And are you going to be trying to attract more cardiac surgery? Or are you going to be trying to do outreach to find pregnant women so that children aren't born uh, uh, low birth weight children aren't born uh, and um, and uh, increase our uh, infant mortality rate. Are you going to do outreach to the community to help kids not smoke and to help uh, young people engage in healthy sexual relationships instead of unhealthy sexual relationships? Or are you going to uh, build more MRI machines and um, uh, operating suites to do more surgery? You're going to do the most lucrative thing. I, Deborah, I think that the, the the Nobel Prize Committee made a really strong statement when they gave the Nobel Prize a few weeks ago to three economists whose research showed that markets can work in two different ways. If you leave markets to their own ends, they, what markets do is they reward, they give the most reward mm-hmm. to the most profitable kinds of products. But markets don't have to be left to determine what the people, what what the social effect is going to be based on profit. Markets can reflect social values. The example uh, that the New York Times gave of this is that when a product is produced that in, in the process of making it produces a lot of greenhouse gas, the cost of the greenhouse gases to all of us is not reflected in the price of the product as it's sold on the market. That's a free market that doesn't integrate social values into the competitive uh, field uh, uh, that determines uh, what price things get sold for. That's what's happening in medicine. The market in medicine is being determined by the most profitable interventions, just like you said, the most profitable diagnoses are the most prestigious ones. And we in the United States allow the market, based on profitability alone, to run much of our lives. Other countries don't do that. They understand that markets are very useful, that they produce great products and they create efficiency, but there has to be ultimately a determination of what the, what the goals are that we're trying to achieve. And in healthcare, I think the current goals that are being achieved are to allow the enfranchised corporations, the big drug companies and other medical industries, to make as much money as they can. I don't think that's the goal that the American people believe ought to be the primary driving force of our health care system. I think the American people believe that our health care system's primary goal ought to be to improve our health. If we're going to get that done, we're going to need politicians who are willing to stand up to this. And right now we've got politicians in both our parties who are beholden to the drug industry and the medical industry, who aren't willing to stand up and say that the system is broken, there's too much commercialism in it, and we've got to ensure that doctors get the right kind of information to best help their patients. 
worse yet. I was was listening to a, a, a political commentator, a well-known, outspoken political commentator, talking about you know the the current candidates out there and commenting you know on, on the one candidate who's obviously his lifestyle made a difference. He wrote a book about it in his own health, say derisively, "Oh, he talks about lifestyle and nutrition as if it's some oddity." Dr. Abramson. Absolutely, and that's exactly the problem, Deborah, because. Here we've got a guy who took control of his own health, who understands that if we want to improve Americans' health, it's not buying more of the most expensive drugs. Occasionally they're really important, but usually not. It's helping people to understand that they can take control of their lives. But what happens in this market-based society that we have is those ideas get dismissed as silly or, or, or weak or sissy-ish. Um, when in fact that's really the way to better health. Why does that happen? Because the public relations companies are hired by the drug companies, by, because the media is dependent on drug company advertising and the newspapers are dependent on drug company advertising, and it's very hard to get this message out. I think, I think really ultimately, I mean, we're talking about health and we're talking about wasting money, but ultimately, Deborah, I think we're talking about an even bigger issue. We're talking about whether democracy can function when most of the information that we get comes from commercial sources. And I personally believe, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat, but I personally believe that the the government's responsibility is to make sure that the marketplace of ideas fairly reflects our best knowledge. And that's not what's going on now. Now, I I disagree with a lot of uh, Governor Huckabee's uh, politics. He's more conservative than, than I am on many issues. But I certainly um, agree with him on his approach to health care, and I am very sympathetic with the way that he's getting dismissed by the powerful companies um, uh, setting the tone for the health care debate. Very telling of our times that for the first time we are seeing this on, on a national scale. It will not be the last time, Dr. Abramson. It won't, but I hope that your listeners will play a key role in holding their politicians accountable for the amount of power and influence that the drug and other medical industries uh, have. And please, listeners, don't be, don't be fooled. Just because somebody's a Democrat doesn't mean that their pockets aren't lined with drug company money. Uh, we've got to hold our politicians responsible for looking out for the American people's health, not for the health of the medical industry. And, you know, when we see the, the almost disconnect of the Food and Drug Administration, you know, regarding drug safety issues, I mean, sometimes they step up to the plate, and then, then sometimes we see, you know, these puzzling responses to, to some of the diabetes drugs when you and I know the whole situation ignores that the real power is in physicians educating their patients that lifestyle choices make a difference for type 2 diabetes, Dr. Abramson. Absolutely true, Deborah. <clears throat> and th- th- watching the FDA, I watch the FDA fairly closely, and it's really an incredibly mixed bag. I mean, there are some wonderful, there is some wonderful work that is done at the FDA. <clears throat> it's just a shame that the American people don't know more about it. I mean, I, I do work, uh, I work as an expert uh, consultant to attorneys who are suing the drug industry, and I spend a lot of time looking at FDA documents, most of them public, and realize that the FDA does a lot of wonderful work about drug safety, but it never gets to the public. 
The, the journals don't check it. The journals uh, ex tend to accept the articles that are uh, written by the drug companies without checking the FDA website to see if the FDA has weighed in on the issue um, uh, and has a, a, a different analysis of what the article that's been submitted to the journal shows. So the FDA is doing some wonderful work, but it's as if they're doing it in a soundproof room or in a black hole, and the American people aren't benefiting from it. And then we see some some decisions by the FDA that look obviously political. Um, the goal of treating uh, patients with diabetes really is not to reduce their blood sugar. It's to reduce their risk of the complications of diabetes, the most feared and common complication being heart disease and cardiovascular disease. So we see a drug like Avandia that does lower blood sugar quite effectively, but appears to increase the risk of heart disease. And <clears throat> even though the, um, the, the drug company keeps marketing the drug as an effective uh, diabetes drug, the FDA doesn't seem to be willing to take a stand that's going to correct the misinformation that's driving the use of this drug. Back so, to exercise, and we'll to continue when we return. Dr. John Abramson joining us today, the author of Overdosed America, right here on Healthy Talk Radio. This is Healthy Talk Radio, news, talk, and information for a healthy lifestyle. Changing healthcare one idea at a time. Here's Deborah Ray. Always an honor when Dr. John Abramson joins us, the author of Overdosed America. If you don't have a copy of the book, you need one, and your health care provider needs one as well. There is more online at overdosedamerica.com. Uh, we cut you short talking about you know how we really affect a change in terms of medical school education, clinical practice. I mean, even the prostate cancer patients, I dare say <laughs> that many of them are not being told about exercise, Dr. Abramson. Absolutely, Deborah. You know, I think a really important uh, message that I would like to get across to your listeners is um, the disconnect between what the evidence shows, and uh, Deborah, you sound like a broken record, and I do too, about how important lifestyle changes are. <clears throat> and then you go to your doctor, and your doctor starts doing tests and prescribing drugs and recommending therapies that don't include lifestyle. And you say, well, why does that happen? Why doesn't my doctor um, read the same scientific Information or believe the same, same scientific information that you're hearing on the radio. The problem is that doctors are taught that they're not, that it's not effective to help people make lifestyle changes. That's what doctors believe. I go all over the country speaking to physicians and they believe that it's not effective. When in fact the scientific evidence shows exactly the opposite. That when doctors do, um, uh, advise their patients to make lifestyle changes, there's a very good response. And we have very good evidence of that. There were two studies that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, 2001 and 2002, that looked at pre-diabetic patients who were randomized, two different studies, they were randomized to get lifestyle counseling or to just go about their business. And in both studies, the group that got lifestyle counseling was 58% less likely to go on and develop diabetes. There's very good evidence that lifestyle counseling by a health professional is very effective. The problem is that your health professional might not believe it. So what can you do? It's very easy. Tell your, when, when you uh, are talking with your doctor, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, your health professional, when you're talking with your health professional, 
about a problem and you're starting to develop a course of action, always ask two questions. Number one is, will lifestyle changes have a positive effect on this problem? And if they do, please help me understand what kinds of lifestyle changes I should make. And then make a follow-up visit so that you come back to see how you're doing with the lifestyle changes, to see how your symptoms are progressing, and to make sure that things are going well. So one question is, always ask your doctor, because your doctor may not bring it up. Would lifestyle changes make a difference? The second question is, if a medication is, if your doctor or healthcare provider thinks the medication is indicated, and often they are, and I'm not anti-medication, always ask if a generic medication will do the job, because a generic medication is going to be tried and true and less expensive, and they're not bringing any free lunch to the doctor's office. Great information. Pieces of advice, and I wish you good health. Thanks to Dr. Abramson. I'm Deborah Ray reminding you to live long, stay healthy. 